going to open our Bibles up to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We've made it to Ephesians chapter 5. The series is called Glory in the Church. And the sermon today is called Be Imitators of God. This is one of the most famous and dearly loved passages, verses in the New Testament. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The idea of being imitators of God the Father is a great picture of what the Christian life is all about. The thought of children imitating parents is a really funny thought, until you're the parents. Am I right? Somebody once said that it's fun having children until you realize that they're just your faults running around on two little legs. Somebody recently filmed a hundred um, children um, imitating their parents. And I'm not going to show you the whole video. Some of the imitations were flattering, some of them not so much. But check it out. Here's kids imitating their parents. Can you imitate your parents? It's not nice to. You can do it, Micah. You can do it, Micah. It's like copy, copy whatever they say. Is there something that they always say? I them? never did that in my life. Say something that they always... You better stop being mean. You cannot jump on your bed or the sofa. You're breaking the sofa, and you're breaking your bed. Here's me, Dad. Okay. Let's go to school. Here's my mom. I'm so pretty. Lena, I love you. Hey, Annie, Gigi. Justin, time for dinner. It's your dinner, young lady. Hey! It's your dinner again! One time my dad said, Eli, my little well, I was a toy. What are they saying? I have no idea. It took them a second to get going. Can you imitate your parents? Um, and then they got into character. Am I right? Uh, that's quite a thought. Somebody pointing a camera at your kids and saying, okay, okay, do mom. Okay, now dad. <laughs> like, count me out, okay? Uh, when it comes to the Bible right here, though, we're going to be challenged today to actually imitate God. Camera's on. Show me your heavenly father. Go. Now, how do we do that? That's the question for the morning. We as a church are a family, and we're learning how to imitate our heavenly father. Let's pray, and then we'll learn how that works. Heavenly father, what a joy it is to call you that. What a blessing and a privilege it is to even be named as children of God. Our prayer this morning is that you would show us what it means to actually live like you, like Christ, to show the world the love of the Father. And may our church be built up on such eternal, unbreakable love and affection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I hope you're in Ephesians 5, verse 1. If you want to take notes, that's great. You can do it in the Anchor Payless app. You just go to the service for today. And then there'll be notes under there. If you're a planner, you can print them up before you come. Again, in the app or on the website, you'll find where you can print up the notes. Uh, but here we are in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. Um, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is one of those sermons where we have a lot of ground to cover. We're hitting like four big topics, and so we're going to skip along each one. But the first one you can write down is this. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. We're given a command here, which means it's an imperative. We have to do it. And we're given a comparison, 
which shows us how to do it. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children. How? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, Christians, we are described here as dearly loved children of God the Father. So many images of God are presented in Scripture, and one of them is a father. Captured in that is the love of a father. The father's love is upon us as his children. We are dearly loved. Now, I love my children, and I don't love them perfectly like God the Father, but I do my best to show them that they are dearly loved. And so when Lauren and I, a few weeks ago, were driving our oldest daughter, Ellie, down to college, and she's still there without us, all alone, probably starving. She's there, right? We were driving, we packed her up, we drove her down, you know, like the whole van was full of her stuff. And uh, while we're trying to show one child how much we love her, my second daughter, Cassie, calls, and she's back at home. And we're like four hours away, and she says, Dad, my phone just got stolen. I was like, oh boy. I'm in the passenger seat here. Lauren's taking first shift, and so I'm, where, well, where were you? I was here, and who took it? Well, I think I know who took it, but I don't know where they went. Oh, all right, so, so now I'm this detective trying to find my daughter's phone, and her phone has everything on it that's important to her pictures and all sorts of media and stuff, and she's like, I need my phone. And so I'm like, all right. Uh, so I snap into action, and I call the police, and I report it, and I'm, who do I call? Our police, their police, whatever, and, and it was stolen in a forest preserve, so I even had to call the forest cops, right? And so I'm making all these calls, tracking it down, and then I've got on my phone where I can pull it up, and I can see where her phone is, right? So I pull it up, and the little blue dot, I'm watching it, and then I tracked it. Here's a picture of what I saw on my phone. I tracked it. I found it right there, and so I called the police. I'm like, I know where the bad guy is. You know, <laughs> let's, let's get him. And the police are surprisingly responsive. And so within a few hours, I was actually texting with an officer and he's like, yep, I'm pulling up right now. I'm going to go knock on some doors. There's two or three possibilities. Now the whole time, you know how when you pull up a lost phone, you can keep telling it to make a sound, right? Ding, ding. And I keep doing that. I keep making the sound, making the sound, making the sound, you know, to just tell the burglar that I'm going to find you. You could even put a pop-up message on the phone, right? And, uh, and so I typed in a little pop-up message that said, I will find you, and I, no, I didn't write that. <laughs> but the little pop-up message was, this phone was stolen, you better return it now, and then we won't press charges. So the thing's going off, right? And the, and the officer's knocking on the door. I, I wasn't there, but I think there was a helicopter overhead, right? And I'm just in the car driving, and we would lose reception periodically, so then I would like, I wouldn't hear what happened for like 20 minutes. Anyway, the officer texted me back and said, you know, I knocked on three doors, nobody answered the door. And so, so then, 10 minutes later, I get a call from my daughter's phone. And this woman's like, hello, hello, uh, my son said he found a phone in the forest today. And I was like, oh, did he now? And she's like, yeah, 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 um, you can come pick it up anytime. We're, we'll, we'll leave it outside if you want. You can just come get it. And I'm like, oh, how convenient that the police are knocking on doors and I'm setting the phone off. And she said that she was napping and she just kept hearing this sound going off, right? So we think we know what happened. Uh, Mom found the son who had taken the phone. Thankfully, we got the phone returned. How about that? Because I try to be a good father. <laughs> while I'm on the road. So that's just one example of how I try and love my children. Phone got stolen, and uh, we traced it down. Now, when it comes to God being a good father, 
you have to ask yourself this, first of all, most important question, are you in the family of faith? Are you in the family of faith? Uh, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, only Jesus can usher you into the family of God. He's the eternal Son of God. All, this is so important for you to understand right now. All, it's really crucial that you get this, because if you don't get this, nothing else I say today is going to matter. All other children except Jesus Christ have to be adopted by faith into the family of God at some point in their lives. You're not born into the family of God. You are born again into the family of God. When were you born again into the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? We can't be imitators of the Father if He isn't our Father. And we can't be children of God if we don't know the Son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's love. Hey, when were you brought into the family of faith? And when you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then God is your loving Father. And so he loves you, and he cares for you, and he provides for you, and he corrects and disciplines you, and he is a great father. I grew up with a great dad, and my dad is also a great granddad. And so now, so Ellie is the second grandkid to go to college, right? And the first grandkid, Ellie's cousin Paige, tipped her off and said, if you need anything, text grandpa. Just, or just call him and be like, oh, I was thinking it would be so nice to have this. And he goes to the post office and he'll send it to you, right? I'm getting him in trouble probably this morning with my mom. Uh, but Ellie has already received a few packages because Grandpa wants to provide for his grandchildren. And he sends her gifts, right? Candy, lights for her room, whatever. And gift giving is one big way to show love. And God gave us the ultimate gift. He gave us Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave up his life for us. And listen, this is the greatest sacrifice anyone will ever make for you. I saw a funny meme on Facebook. In Chicago, we don't say, I love you. We say, yes, I will pick you up at O'Hare. And it's beautiful. <laughs> we all know that, right? You're like, oh, who wants to get picked up at O'Hare? All right. We've reached that level of friendship, right? Love is, the greatest expression of love is God giving his only son to save your soul. What a gift. Here's the problem. That gift is worthless to you if you think you're a pretty good person who's kind of coasting to heaven. And you're, you've done a little few bad things. But overall, you don't need someone to save you from hell. If that's your impression of yourself, you won't value the greatest gift that God has ever given. You won't value it. Christ died for us. It says here, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do we be imitators of God? Well, look at the cross. See the love Jesus gave for the sinful fallen world. That's how we're supposed to love each other. That is how we get into a loving relationship with God, and that's how we begin loving other people. Christ died for us. He suffered on the cross as a substitute for your sins. You can't get rid of one sin off your record. But Jesus can pay it all for you at the cross. Because he offered himself for you, all of your sins can be taken away. Hey, listen. Sin and love both require a sacrifice 
that only Jesus can afford to pay. Your sin requires a sacrifice that only Jesus can afford to pay. And the cross fulfills the demands of both sin and love. And so we live for him because he died for us. Hey, let me invite you, if you have never been baptized as a way of showing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in two weeks we're having our next baptism service. At the end of the service today, I'm going to give you a chance to talk to one of our staff members about baptism if you have questions. It's not like we're going to dunk you without your approval, right? But we want you to say, hey, I'm ready to talk about it. I'm ready to publicly declare that Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord, and I want everyone to know. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and live a life of love for God and for others. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There as a church, we get a picture in Jesus of what it means to love God and love other people in the context of community. It's sacrifice. It's sacrifice. So number one, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Now number two is like a, is like a cup of cold water to the face. Because the moment we start talking about love, we need to be loving toward each other. Then some sins are introduced that we must avoid if we are going to build a loving community. Okay, so it goes on to say this. In verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Wow. All right, so number two, write this down. Live sexually pure lives. Live sexually pure lives. We're not going to get too far into this point, um, but what we have to cover is this. We have to guard our hearts and our homes and our church from sexual sin. We have to post a guard on our hearts and in our homes and in this church against sexual sin. We are all tempted in this area and we have to look around and face the reality that we live in the most sexually perverse, warped, confused, and defiant generation in human history. Listen, I'm going to say that again. Look around, because we live in the most sexually perverse, warped, confused, and defiant generation in history. Know the world, know the times. If you add up the amount of porn consumed by our generation, the number of affairs logged and the legitimacy that has come about of forbidden relationships, and not only the normalization, but the glamorization of every form of impurity and shameful, flagrant depravity. We have become champions at being vulgar, indecent, lewd, and disgraceful. And listen, we are paying dearly for our sexual anarchy on earth. But wait till the next life. The wrath is still to come. Therefore, churches must decide to protect congregations from sexual sin. Lust is a raging forest fire that makes the world a colder place. Do you get me? The fires of lust, while enjoyable temporarily, 
Lust is a raging forest fire that makes the world a colder place in the end. And many churches, many churches have allowed the dam to burst and the sexual sewage of worldliness to sweep their integrity away for good. They have allowed biblical integrity in this area to be thrown out the window. We must decide to protect our congregation from sexual sin. It begins with the truth. Sex was designed to be enjoyed between a married man and a woman for life. This is the biblical way from creation. One man, one woman for life. While there are a few provisions and exceptions in Scripture for remarriage, the, the, um, the rule is one man and one woman for life. So we have to guard against fallen and forbidden lusts and relationships. Against, the Bible says, all impurity, all immorality. And it says we're not even to speak of such things, but sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named among you. Hey, how, how as a congregation are you doing at protecting the church from this? Oh, we, it's unspeakable in our church. It's, we don't even talk that way, let alone live that way. Sometimes people who are young and dating say, well, how far can we go? What, how far can we go? And the Bible says very clearly, where do we draw the line, right? Can I go this far? Can I go this far? Can I go this? Where does the, if I were to ask you the question, if you're a little confused about that, if I were to say, where does the Bible draw the line? What answer would come up in your mind? Do not look lustfully upon a woman. For if so, you've committed adultery in your heart. So, so point to where the line is drawn. Everybody point to where the line is drawn right here right here. How far can we go? Uh, what's the look? Now you can take it from there with, well, what if I close my eye? All right, you're not getting the point. <laughs> See, when we want something that's forbidden, we try and warp the reality. And I would just say maybe God is challenging on this area. We must protect our hearts. And listen, it's so crucial to understand whenever we're tempted to sin, it's because we think God is standing in the way of something better. And in this area, that couldn't be more false. God is not holding you back from a world of pleasure that if only you didn't know what the Bible said, you could be having so much fun like all your friends. God is not holding you back from a world of enjoyment and pleasure. Hey, listen, this is so crucial to understand about sin. God is holding you back from a tic-tac of pleasure and an eternity of pain. Do you understand that? Pleasure for now, pain forever. That's the way of the world. And God is holding you back from that. And if you follow the way of Christ, pain for now, pleasure forever. That's God's will for you. Don't let the enemy warp your understanding of what God has for you. Last week, I heard the devastating news that a pastor within our own church network, a man who I had mentored, left his wife and kids for another woman. Heartbreaking. Left the ministry, left the church, just ran off. Heartbreaking. The news is filled with headlines from a Christian college that's been embroiled in a scandal now as the president and his wife seem to have made it a pattern to throw all decency out the window. All decency as they had established a private, shameless, and lewd life, and they have now disgraced Christ. And I lament 
the damage they are doing to the next generation of young Christians. If only they had protected their hearts and their homes from this sin. We have to realize that there are standards, and we are all held to the common standards. Leaders are held to the same standard, but they pay a heavier price if they fall. And as a church, I want to give you confidence that we have a leader covenant, and every staff member and every elder and every deacon and every small group leader in this church knows that if you get involved with a person in a sexually immoral relationship, you will no longer be a leader in this church. Pastors know they will lose their jobs. Elders know they will lose their post. You will never have to deal with the agony of watching this happen and then wondering, well, are they going to take care of that? Are they going to take care of that? We've already made the decision. Now, are there things that we can work through together? Are there things that stop short of disqualification? Sometimes. And if possible, we'll do that. Praise God that we, we can be and we have been forgiven for all of our sins in this category at the cross of Christ. Therefore, we must not hide sin in this area or impurity or worse, we must not as a church normalize it or glamorize it, heaven forbid, as some churches have done. We have to understand that Satan is not done with you. Satan is not done with this church. And therefore, we have to have our guard up in protecting. And I want to give you hope if you've fallen in this area, if you have slipped, if, you have, if you've had a setback. Look, the sooner you bring things into the light, the sooner the healing can begin. God's grace will rush upon you. His church will gather around you. Will there be consequences? You knew there would be. But don't let that stop you from making the right move today. Hey, number one, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. <clears throat> number two, live sexually pure lives. Number three, jot this down. Keep your life free from the love of money and stuff. Wow, we're going there today, right? Let's talk about sex and money. Let's get to politics next. All in favor of that. <laughs> Some weeks I'm just like, oh Lord, guard my tongue. But uh, in, in, in number three, keep your life free from the love of money. It goes on to say this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Okay, so covetousness, um, this is, I've got to be honest, I feel when, when coveting comes up, I feel simultaneously in my private life both convicted and confused about what, what this means. What does it mean to covet in our day and age? What does it mean to sinfully give in to that um, and I, I would say, how do I know if coveting is a daily battle I must win? Okay, question number one, are you alive? Yes, okay. And number two, do you live in the United States, the wealthiest country in the history of life? Um, yes. All right, then coveting is a daily battle that we must all win. But wh what does that mean to win it? Like, should I feel guilty if I go to Kohl's? And, and have a sweater and get another one? Like, where do I, how, what are the uh, gauges on the dashboard of this so that I know if I'm sinning? Well, again, we have to understand the times. We live in a day where, I was talking with my wife about this on a walk, it's almost, it's almost like we've kind of eliminated the temptation to covet because we can just order it without even wanting it. Like, oh, that looks nice, ordered. Like, I didn't even take time to be like, I really want it. It's like we've with Amazon, next day delivery. It's like, we, we don't even have to want it. We can just one click and it's on the way, right? 
But is that what it means? Like, if I order something, am I to feel guilty that I now have one more thing in my house? No, it's not as simple as that. We do have to understand principles of contentment found in Scripture. Okay, so the Bible says that food and clothing and shelter are the only necessities in life. Once we have those, that's when contentment begins. That's when it starts. Now, that's not where it stops, because the Bible talks about things like though your riches increase, and it talks about things like working hard, and, and it gives provisions for gaining property and homes. It, those things are not inherently bad. But once we have food, clothing, and shelter, every everything else puts us in a position where we are enjoying a varying degree of luxury. Luxury. And how we enjoy that is very important to God. So we have to understand where contentment starts. It's terrifying today to think about not having things that we love. It really is. Which is why the show on the History Channel alone is so captivating. How many of you have seen that show alone on the History Channel? So they, they put 12 or whatever people out in the middle of the Canadian Arctic wilderness. And they just, they get like 10 things and then they just let them survive. Some of them are out there like 80, 90 days. They're out there with, no, with nothing. In the middle of nowhere all alone. Here's some pictures. They've got to they've build their own shack with the tarp and some moss. They've got to hunt their own food. Here's another picture. Uh, they, they have to figure out how to live with nothing. And um, here's another picture. And it's freezing, and it's, it's raining, and they, they've got to catch fish. And, they've got, and this show is really great. I mean, they, there's bear attacks. People, one guy killed a moose. Uh, I mean, and, and they're out there, and, you know, their own lives go on. One woman had, a, had an MS flare up while she was out there, right? And, and at any point, they can call in. And they know they can be rescued. But this is so captivating. Why? Why is it so captivating? They have nothing. <gasps> What's going to happen next? And really, we live in that day and age where it's not normal to see people who have nothing. It's abnormal. And we're terrified of it. Why? Because there's really a lie. Money and things make promises that only God can keep. Money can't make you any more secure. Things can't make you any more satisfied. Only Jesus can do that. You can be content without them, or you can be content with them. The choice is up to us, and as a church, we have to guard our congregation against materialism. We know the name-it-claim-it prosperity gospel is everywhere in the world today, it's a shameful affront to the true gospel. Want to know what makes the gospel worse than ever? Telling people that Christ comes with a free car. Promising the riches of this life. What an affront to the gospel. And as a church, we cannot make money our mission or our Messiah. We're warned against that. The prosperity gospel, I hope you don't get taken in on TV by these guys who promise you all the health and all the wealth you want if you just send in your seed money. I hope you don't get taken advantage of by that. I hope you don't fall for that. The prosperity gospel makes greed the default in discipleship. We have to keep our lives free from the love of money 
and stuff. So I've got, here's a, here's a few sub points. This is a coveting checkup. You ready? Jot this down. Is your relationship with God sour or sinful because of money or things? Sour? I just don't know how we're going to make. I don't, now we don't have this. and I don't just want more. Is your relationship with God sour? Good checkup we've shared before is, overall, a healthy financial home will have an income plan. You have a way to make money. A savings plan, meaning you're not spending it all. A giving plan, meaning you give to God first, right? You've got an income and a saving and a spending and a giving plan. You've got a spending plan that's a budget. If, if you don't have an income plan and a savings plan and a giving plan and a spending plan, in this economy, my goodness, you're just asking for trouble. We can't be foolish. And is your relationship with God sour or sinful because of money or things? And we don't harp on this often, and I'm not saying this because we have a gigantic need or whatever, but I would just say this. If you're not giving to the Lord first, things aren't right with you and God. Because from the beginning, God wanted people to come into his presence and bring an offering. Okay? If you are out of work, please hear me, I'm not talking to you. If you don't have income, please hear me, I'm not talking to you. Okay? But um, when this comes up in the scripture of coveting and, and greed and wanting too much, I've just got to say this, I've got to touch on this and go there. The Bible has been clear, Genesis through Revelation, right? Come into his presence, bring an offering. And if you're not giving to God, things aren't right with your worship. And you, you can't say, well, you know, I'm doing good because I've got a budget, okay, spending plan, and I work hard and I earn, okay, you've got an income plan, and, you know, and, and I've got to spend it, but the giving plan, the giving plan, where's the giving plan? And never give out of guilt, but I'd love for you to just, and that's how you know if things are sour with God and you in this area. Giving? Giving? I have to? Uh-oh. Now we see covetousness springing up. Is your relationship with God sour or sinful because of money or things? Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus set aside the palace and treasures of heaven to redeem your soul. It's better to give than to receive. Hey, let's have a checkup in this area. Is God first in this area? Or does that thought sour you? Or even worse, are there sinful things in your finances that you haven't repented of? Is your relationship with God sour or sinful because of money or things? Hey, church, we've got to keep our lives free from the love of money and stuff. And money is a rival God. The Bible's clear. You cannot love money and God. And the best way to put money in his place as he tries to take control of our lives is to bring him to our true God first. To face the one who gave it all. And then from that point on, God is the one who is the steward of everything in your life. Jot this down. Is your relationship with others sour or sinful because of money or things? Once we have what we need, then we're enjoying varying degrees of luxury. And so then we can be tempted to be envious of other people. And it's a trap. It's a trap to look at somebody else and to want what they have. And because I don't have it, I'm, I'm sour toward them. Or worse, I'm sinful toward them because they have it and I don't. And I want it. And, and greed is my default. And for some people, this area has never been under control in your life getting has been the default in your heart. Giving has never been your way. And I would just say that God's challenging you on that today. Envy in comparison is a trap. Hey, listen, contentment 
is an oasis in a desert of desire. Have you found that oasis of contentment yet? Whether I have, whether I have not. Apostle Paul said, I've known the secret of living in every situation. It's Christ. Is your relationship with others sour or sinful because of money or things? Hey, God is able to provide for you. God is willing to be a good father to you. Our congregation will be stronger if we are generous toward each other and toward God. And as we strive to keep our lives free from the love of money and stuff, I'm just reminded of the old hymn, right, that questions our soul. Hey, would, would you rather have Jesus than silver or gold? Would you rather be his than have riches untold? Would you rather have Jesus than houses and lands? Would you rather be led by his nail-pierced hands? Or would you rather take the bag of silver? What a convicting point. Number three, keep your life free from the love of money and stuff. Number one, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Number two, live sexually pure lives. Number three, keep your life free from the love of money and stuff. And number four, finally, get rid of filthy and foolish talk. This one's going to be faster because the whole sermon last week was on our words, right? It says this, uh, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So we're challenged on our words again, and um, last week, you remember what I shared with you, we're challenged about the downward spiral, right, of, uh, of anger and rage and clamor and slander, right, we're, we're the, the downward spiral, so how did you do? Did you have a good week? Did you have a good week with your words? Uh, because, because I had a challenging week, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess here. Uh, my laptop, my old laptop died, wouldn't turn on, that was frustrating, and so I uh, I, uh, I took it into Best Buy, and the Geek Squad told me it'd be a few days. And then they emailed me, same day. And I was like, that's odd. They said it would be a few days, but this is the same day. So I went back in, and the guy said, um, you're going to need to take your laptop top back. And I said, okay, did you run the diagnostic? Oh, no, we couldn't even get through the diagnostic. I said, why couldn't you? And he said, your battery began to swell and heat up. I was like, oh, and he's typing on his computer, and he goes, yeah, we, we stop working on them when there's about to be a thermal event, and I was like, <laughs> and he stopped and looked at me, and he's like, meaning your laptop catching fire. It was about to burst into flames. I'm like, oh my goodness. Maybe you heard a few weeks ago, I shared the story of how my lawnmower tried to kill me, the blade flew off, now my laptop's trying to set me on fire. Goodness, what's happening in 2020? And so then he gives it back to me. Here you go. And I'm like, I don't want it. <laughs> Just throw it out back or something. I don't know. But I, that, that idea, here's a picture of me coming out of Best Buy with, with the laptop, scared to death, right? And the, they give you a folder that says, we're here to help. Well, thanks for nothing. Thanks for giving me Chernobyl back. So I'm walking out with, and he said thermal event. And that, that's actually pretty picturesque. Like, I was tempted to have a thermal event at the Geek Squad counter because my laptop wasn't working. And then I got a new laptop, because this one was about to blow up, and now my, my new laptop won't turn on. <laughs> I brought it back, and I'm like, don't have a thermal event. Don't have a thermal event. I said, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I preach on something, then I get tempted in that area. Do you feel like when you hear a sermon on something, you get tempted on the area? Satan! And so I bring the laptop back. I'm like, this is my new laptop, and it won't turn on. Is it going to blow up too? <laughs> Thankfully, it just seems like it was a firmware thing. But 
Wow. Hey, let there be no... We have to watch our mouth. This week, though, it zeroes in on filthy and foolish talk. So did you write that down? Get rid of filthy and foolish talk. So this could cover things like swearing or, or coarse joking. The Bible will use that phrase. Uh, potty mouth. Our words can be dirty. This is another common area where people who've grown up in the church perhaps are like, well, what words can I say? Can I say this one? Can I say this one? Can, and they want to push the, uh, the limit of just how filthy their mouth can become and think that God's okay with it. All right, fine, you can say that. All right, fine. That doesn't reflect a healthy heart. Um, a healthy heart. If you're asking the question, just how worldly can my speech become? That's the wrong question. The better question is, how can my every word glorify God? How can my every word glorify God? It's a better question. And in church community, how can the way we talk amongst ourselves, how can, how can what we say make a stronger, better, brighter, more purified church? Okay, this goes for student ministry. This goes for young adults in college. This goes for everyone. Hey, am I raising the bar of decency? Or, or am I trying to take that elevator down to the basement when I'm around my church friends? with my jokes. Let there be no filthy or foolish talk. How can my every word glorify God? And then my job as a preacher is to reflect to you the tone of the text, okay? And you know, if you've been coming for a long time, you know that I'm not a fire and brimstone, you know, hollering at you kind of preacher. What I want to do, though, is I want to make sure we're crystal clear on how this passage ends, all right? It says this, verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone, everybody say everybody, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What does that mean? It means exactly what it says. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Hey, the wrath of God is coming, and I, I as a minister of the gospel, have to end this with a stern warning to you. If everything that we just covered here results in you continuing to try and get more and more and more worldly in these areas, it likely reflects that you don't love God as a child. You haven't been saved. It likely reflects that. And there's no place in heaven for you. On the other hand, if you hear these dire warnings and you're like, I'm getting away from that, likely you have been saved by grace through faith and the Holy Spirit in you is pulling you back from the fire that's coming on this world. Wrath is coming, and I have to reflect that to you. Hey, listen, remember Egypt. Remember Sodom. Remember Jericho. Remember the spies who came back with a faithless report when the ground opened up and swallowed them all. Remember Lot's wife who looked back. Remember Jerusalem, surrounded and burned. Remember Noah. 
understand that we ain't seen nothing yet. This is a stern warning. If your life is marked by an unbroken commitment to sexual sin or money or stuff or greed or filthy language, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe God is beckoning you to get saved this morning and to surrender your life to Christ for the first time. Maybe God is beckoning you to give up your worldliness, Christian, and to once and for all sever the cord that's tying you to the world. Either way, he's inviting us to purify our hearts, to purify our homes, and to purify our church. All of this is tied into the passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's respond to what we've just heard in prayer together. Jesus, what a challenging message We thank you for your great love at the cross for us. We understand that the wrath of God is coming on the world. And we deserve that wrath. For we have sinned, each one of us, in many ways. And the penalty is death and eternity apart from you forever. But today there are some who are ready to surrender their lives to you, to walk away from the world, and to become imitators of God as dearly loved children. Jesus, I just pray for those who feel ashamed and condemned and broken and hopeless. I just pray that by your Spirit you would invite them to pray right now, whether here in person or listening online, to pray this, to say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Forgive me for all of my sins in these areas. I have been living a worldly life. But here and now it ends. Here and now I ask Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord forever to forgive me, to wash me and cleanse me, to teach me how to live a loving life. Here and now, I invite Jesus to promise me heaven forever and to give me a place in the kingdom of Christ's inheritance. Here and now, I walk away from my life of sin and I either place my faith in Christ or I renew my faith in Christ again. Jesus, purify our hearts. Fill us with hope, not condemnation. Teach us to love in its highest, most heavenly form. We pray this in your name.